Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and leave some good reviews. We're going to do something a little different today. Up till now, most of our episodes have focused on American topics. Um, we did do an episode recently on Hong Kong, which I, uh, I thought was really good. But uh, we want to do a series of episodes that focus on other countries around the world. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is, is uh, a famous quote by the sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset, which says that a person who knows only one country knows no countries. So you need to understand other countries and their political systems and cultures if you want to understand America. And uh, the second reason, of course, is that, you know, we live in a more integrated world and things that happen in one place uh, affect other places. And sometimes our sense of what is going on in other places can get distorted through various media channels and whatnot. So wanted to have someone to come on to give their perspective on India from India. So our guest is Kushal Mira. Did I pronounce that correctly, more or less? Yeah. It, okay. Actually, it's a very good effort for an American, I guess. Okay, yeah, and I should say, uh, in the course of this, there are probably there's going to be a lot of names that I mispronounce. Like your podcast is the Carvaca. I mean, C A R V A K A podcast. I know that's not right. So you know, I apologize in advance for it. You can correct. Feel free to correct me or not correct me as you choose. It's just kind of the unavoidable nature of the game. But welcome to the show. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's it's. I'm looking forward to this discussion. And uh, yeah, so I host uh, what is called the Charvak podcast. And just to give you a brief background about why I called it the Charvak podcast. So, so in the Indian philosophical pantheon, there were nine schools originally. They were divided into Astika, the Orthodox, and the Nastika schools, which were the heterodox schools. So Charvak was one of the three original heterodox schools in India. It's a materialist, hedonistic uh, school. And I basically belong to that lineage. Or, I mean, I consider myself to be a part of that lineage. So, I mean, I, and I think I'm the only kind of living, breathing guy who actually associates with that club or that clique for that sense. So I just like, I, I call my podcast the Charvak Podcast. And why don't you give us uh, just a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur in India now for good two decades now, I guess, yeah, almost 18 years. Uh, so born and raised in Mumbai. I went to Canada for a while. I stayed in North America. I did a bit of education studying there, came back, was just doing my business. And then I was always a good reader. I, I used to like to read a lot of books. And it, it literally started like that when my wife was like, you know, you annoy me too much. So just start speaking with other people. Otherwise, all the input was just going to the wife. So she was like, please go out. And I literally started going out and getting into some social activism. And that time in 2009 in India, there was this movement called India Against Corruption. And it was about, uh, you know, this was when the UPA government, the Manmohan Singh-led government uh, was in power. And there were a lot of scams at that time that had come out. And there was a lot of anger in India in general. So at that time, you know, I started participating in that movement. I was one of the few first 10, I think, who started the chapter in Mumbai 
in fact one of the main leaders of that movement then ended up forming his own political outfit which is called the aam aadmi party which is translated into english is called the common people's party uh, he is the chief minister of the city state of delhi right now arvind kejriwal i don't associate with that political party anymore then i left that uh, movement and then i joined a group called friends of bjp which is basically like an professionals who want to be associated with the bharatiya janata party uh, the bharatiya janata party being the political outfit that the current prime minister of india belongs to narendra modi and then i left them too because i felt like i don't want to be having a tag of a political outfit because sometimes what happens is uh, when you tend to have a tag of a political outfit then y- you lose your sting at least in in india you tend to lose your sting you can't criticize a political outfit so i just wanted that freedom so from there then i've been you know associated with uh, uh, leaders in the bharatiya janata party bjp and uh, since then i've been working with a member of parliament and it, it i just try to do whatever i can so there is a scheme that was launched by the current prime minister narendra modi in his first term which was called the sansad adarsh gram yojana basically it uh, it's a scheme where every member of parliament has to adopt villages outside their constituency so i basically you know took that opportunity and told uh, a member of parliament that you know give me the chance i want to go and work in these villages so uh, you know i used to travel almost every week to those villages we we did a survey of the villages we found out what are the problems in those villages like bathrooms or roads or electricity or other social indices and you know we tried to make changes and and also in mumbai i kind of work uh, you know in the urban slums i try to go there and whatever in whatever way i can help so yeah i just try to do my bit as i run my own business in the us we basically have two political parties you have the democratic party uh on the left the republican party on the right there are some other minor parties like the libertarian party the green party or whatever but they typically there are no members of them in congress or governors of those parties everyone is just the, the two parties and in india obviously there are many more political parties than that some of which are local you know more locally based or whatever it does seem to be the case that there are two main parties that kind of lead the different coalitions and that tend to be at the head of the different governments and you mentioned two of them there's the BJP the current ruling party and then there is the Congress party which is as i understand it has ruled for most of the history of post independence india and uh, i guess the common perception would be that the the congress party is the more left of center party the liberal party or whatever and the BJP would be the more conservative party. Would you say that that's accurate or what what's missing from that? Yeah, that is what the international perception or even the perception uh, in the left wing of India and how it's portrayed outside India uh, would be it's actually pretty accurate but if you ask my opinion uh uh to begin with I would like to state that I don't think so India has a right wing at all. India does not have a right wing political party period. Uh not in terms of uh, economics at all. and if you look at india's political history india has never really had a two party system other than the brief uh, decade of the 90s right up to 2005 so the 90s was when the congress had a prime minister pv narasimha rao and then uh, he was replaced by the bjp prime minister atal bihari vajpayee uh, in that time you know you you did have a case where the the seat distribution or the vote percentage distribution was of a particular style or a pattern 
And we had the opposition and the ruling party formed these two parties as the major chunk. And there were smaller parties, you know, revolving around that. But previous to that and after that, I think India has actually been in in a very uh, unique political scenario where one single political outfit has pretty much had the majority all the time and, and a very overwhelming majority. So I would say India has actually experienced uh, most of its political history has been about a single party dominating the discourse and the other people just, you know, kind of shouting and screaming around it, whether it's the BJP in opposition or the Congress in opposition. Having said that, I think in the Indian, in, in, in and this is the biggest problem that we have. I mean, I mean this is my view I, and you'll find a lot of people who disagree with my view, uh, you know, who live abroad, Indians who live abroad, but I think they're wrong and I'm right. And I'll explain <laughs> why. Yeah, and, and, and I can present uh, present my case factually. Like, I believe India has left-wing parties, all of them. And they are based on a very identitarian, sectarian outlook of the world. In terms of economics, I can guarantee you, if I was to present to you any single political outfit in India, it does not matter which political outfit they are. It could be a local political outfit uh, of the state of Bengal or the state of Tamil Nadu right down in the south or in Jammu and Kashmir, or in any no- other northeastern or central Indian state. If you look at their economic policies, they're all the same. Like if I was to play a game with you guys, where I just removed the name of the political outfit, and I just read the policies, you would all place those political outfits in terms of economic and social policies on the left, including the BJP. In fact, the BJP, since it has come to, come to power, this being their second term, has not changed a single Congress policy. They have doubled down on them in terms of, you know, increasing the funding of those very social welfare schemes. So I don't know why BJP and right now it's it's actually very funny. The, uh, right now, the criticism of the BJP from a major section of their own supporters is that you are not capitalists, you're socialists. So, so it's like BJP can't convince anyone. They can't convince the left wingers that they're left wing and they can't convince the, their own people that left wing economics is a good idea. So I don't know what BJP is doing. Now, Now the main difference in India, cutting across political outfits, is not economics. It's on certain social issues. In that sense, again, I don't think Congress is actually a socially liberal party. Every single political party in India panders to a particular type of conservative audience. So if I was to look at the BJP, the BJP panders to the Hindu conservatives. The Congress panders to the Muslim and Christian conservatives. Then you have, you know, local political outfits from a state like Uttar Pradesh, which is uh, called the Samajwadi Party. Samajwadi means socialist out party. They will pander to a particular caste outfit, which would be the Yadavs, along with the Muslims. So their matrix would be, I'm going to appease the Yadav and Muslim conservatives. They'll vote for me at a state level and a national level when, when, uh, when we have the, you know, the parliamentary elections. Similarly, you can go around India. So basically, at a cultural level, we have, you know, political outfits based on linguistic identities, based on state identities, based on religious identities. But the whole image is so warped around the world that, you know, BJP is this right wing outfit and the Congress is this, you know, amazing bastion of liberalism. But if you look at policy decisions, whether it's, you know, curbing free speech in India, I think both are the same. I mean, I can state case after case after case, but it's just that, you know, 
around the world, we are used to this discussion. Because I've lived in the West and I follow politics in the West uh, a little bit more than the average Indian. So I kind of understand the Western mindset. So the West always looks like, okay, these are the liberals. Now we need to find the conservative. So they were looking for the conservative in India and the, the left, the, the ruling elite in India said, you know what, call these guys the conservatives. And everybody just calls them that. And the BJP is like, okay, we are the conservatives. As if, you know, BJP gets some award by doing that. I mean, I was laughing when BJP had joined the the global conservative uh, you know consortium where the Republicans are there. I mean, I was just laughing because imagine a discussion between on economics between the Republicans and the BJP representatives. That would be an interesting room to be in. Right. Although it, the Republican... Uh relationship to fr- the free market seems to be a little bit in flux right now. So I don't know, maybe they maybe they want to get some pointers <laughs> from the BJP. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the BJP and about Prime Minister Modi, but I do have one more question just focused on the Congress because there was recently an election in India. The ruling BJP party was returned. Prior to that, the head of the Congress party was Rahul Gandhi, who his father, I believe, was prime minister and his grandmother before that was prime minister and his great-grandfather was the first prime minister of India. And I believe also his mother was the head of the party, never prime minister. So, you know, you mentioned that for a long period, India was basically a one-party state, the Congress party. And that party, in a way, seems to have been dominated by one particular family. So to what extent is that actually a factor in things? Or is that just kind of like the, you know, I mean, we have political dynasties here in the United States as well, but it doesn't seem as consistent, perhaps, as in India. So I mean, is there is there just kind of like, but because the, the family, Nehru Gandhi's, you know, were associated with independence and the founding of the country or whatever, is there just like a lot of carryover for that in terms of people want to support that or or, or what's the deal there? But yeah, the, you can say that Jawaharlal Nehru had that, uh, you know, aura about him. And uh, although I may have a strong disagreements with the policies of Jawaharlal Nehru, but unlike a lot of BJP supporters, I'm not a Nehru hater. I think he did contribute to India's independence and he should be given credit where it's due. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get hate for even saying this on your podcast by a certain section of the BJP. But uh, these are my views. But having said that, I think Congress changed when Indira Gandhi took over. Because uh, the Congress before Indira Gandhi took over was, you know, a Congress where there were a lot of stalwarts. But once Indira Gandhi took over the party, she basically, you know, with pinpoint accuracy, destroyed all the other alternative centers of power. Look, I personally don't really have an issue with, you know, political dynasties. What I have an issue is that if you look at it, let's take America, for example, right? I mean, we have the Bush dynasty, right? We've had the Kennedys too. I mean, the Kennedys are, you know, there were the brothers uh, were there. And there are other political dynasties in America too. But the thing is that beyond a certain point, uh, you may get a foot into the door because of your dynasty, uh, what they call, because uh, the benefit of being born in the right family. To, to be very honest. But eventually you have to answer to the people. In the case of Congress and the Gandhi family, it's not like there are no political dynasties in the BJP or other political outfits in India, like the political outfit in Maharashtra, which is called the Shiv Sena, which is an ally of the BJP in the current government and in the previous governments too, at the state and the central level. They are also a dynasty. 
they're just managed by one family but the thing is the amount of impact they have we have to gauge by that the gandhi family has had a vice like grip post indira gandhi taking over the congress till the extent that right now you know there are people like me shouting and screaming that what is wrong with the congress why can't they dump the gandhis because at the end of the day we need a you know opposition in this country we just don't have an opposition because the gandhis basically rahul gandhi has literally you know gone past his sell date at least as of now politically in terms of political capital and what you see is this overwhelming vice like grip of just one family on the entire discourse and you couple that with uh, certain societal realities of india as a nation again this is not going to get me any love from certain audiences in india but i think india is a very feudal society in many ways so in typical feudal societies you know how it goes right you know your sons are you know the fathers are doctor the sons are doctor the fathers are lawyer the sons are lawyer the fathers are politician the sons are daughters are the politicians but you cannot compare the dynasty of the congress with other dynasties in india especially in the bjp you will see a lot of bjp leaders also putting their children in the political party getting tickets and fighting but the thing is they have to literally fight their way up the bjp is a cadre based party the bjp whether you like them or hate them that's not the issue here but the bjp has a system in place where they vote for their leaders at different levels the congress says they vote for youth leaders but at the end of the day the buck stops with you know especially sonia gandhi i mean if you look at the congress presidents you know there was a funny meme going around on the internet where they showed the number of bjp presidents since uh, sonia gandhi took over and they were showing the congress presidents since you know the uh, time of sonia gandhi and the congress uh, slide was basically sonia gandhi sonia gandhi sonia gandhi sonia gandhi once a photo of rahul gandhi and then now we are again back to sonia gandhi as the congress party president and with the bjp you had a multitude of personalities you know sometimes it was bangaru lakshman sometimes it was someone else sometimes it's amit shah so there were so many people who would become the party president or a rajnath singh for that example so that just shows that you know if you are in the if you're a person who wants to make a political career you still have more opportunity in that sense in the bjp if you want to rise through the ranks than in the congress in the congress you just have to you know bow down to their lordships the gandhis and if you bow down to the lordships the gandhis that's the only way to rise up and even then you can't go beyond them they are the bosses and i think that's been their destruction now Okay, let's turn then to the other side, the BJP and Modi. As you may know, Prime Minister Modi is going to be in the US next month. He's actually as part of that trip coming to Houston where Doug is located uh, to give a speech and there I think they had like 50,000 tickets for the speech and they sold out in a very short period of time. So there's uh, there's obviously a, a lot of interest there. Um and you know, uh the uh western media the american media when they talk about politics in other countries recently the kind of uh go to shortcut is they try and find someone in that country who they can identify as that country's trump right so you know uh in hungary viktor orban is hungary's trump right or in brazil the new president there is the brazilian trump and so modi has been compared quite a bit as like the trump of india or whatever although uh, modi took office a couple years before trump did so perhaps trump is the <laughs> trump is the modi of india i don't know but uh so w- what is your perspective on that do you think that that is a- obviously 
it's an analogy. There's certainly going to be differences. Uh, I, I know that after the recent elections, I believe there was a photo of Prime Minister Modi, you know, a- after he found out the poll results, I think there was a picture of him retiring to like a mountainside to meditate for a day or whatever, which is not, I don't think Trump, if he were to win re-election in 2020, would, would do that, right? <laughs> That's definitely a, a, a difference. But do you see any similarity there or do they play a parallel role in the political culture? Honestly, I see nothing in common between Trump and Modi. Let's begin with uh, the first thing. Trump has openly said in his rallies that he's fighting for capitalism. Right. I mean, I've heard a few speeches of Trump where, you know, we should, you know, he's mentioned the word capitalism many times. I don't even remember one speech where Modi has fought for capitalism. Not once. I I don't remember. Modi is a very open left of center politician. Uh, Trump would not be someone who would be for affirmative action in America. Right. He would not support it. Modi just declared a scheme where he increased the limit of affirmative action in India. He, he literally increased the percentage of people who would receive affirmative action in India. So I just don't get it. I mean, like I said, you know, in the beginning of the podcast, the problem is, and, and I realized this when I used to live in America too, it's not just about Indian politics. It's about Indian culture and Hinduism too. The, the caricature of Indian culture and Hinduism in the West is actually, and to be very honest, uh, I say this with full responsibility. It's actually very, very mediocre and unintellectual. It's it. And, and I realize that even today in the modern parlance, when you listen to Part Save America or you listen to Ben Shapiro, and if both their sources are Ramachandra Guha, then you know something is going wrong. Where, where you know, they just look and, and look in this, I call this, you know, in, in Hindi, we have this sweet meat called Jalebi. It's a round thing which keeps going in circles. And I call it the Jalebi cartel or a citation loop. So in this entire citation loop about India, just one person has to provide the information and you know somebody in the west picks up that person okay okay brown guy come here i certify you as the india expert and that that india expert you don't fact check that india expert i'm not saying that india expert is always lying you know, many times uh, they might speak the truth too but there are many blatant lies that are given about india indian politics indian culture hindu culture And that just goes around in a citation loop. So you can't say the New York Times or the Washington Post or the BBCs are lying because they're just relying on their India expert. But the problem is the India expert. That India expert is not giving you an accurate picture. To say Trump is like Modi is actually the complete opposite. I think Modi was far more similar to a Barack Obama on on a policy level than a Donald Trump. I mean, and, and I always say this, let's just... Look at Modi's policy decisions, remove the BJP logo and just look at the record of Narendra Modi as a leader and forget about it. And then look at Barack Obama as a leader and you'll find a lot more policy overlap with a Modi and Obama than, you know, a Trump and Modi. Having said that, I also believe that it's very hard to compare two different societies. I think my experience of living in the West is that the West lives in a very Abrahamized template. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying it. this is what my experience was of looking at the West as an outsider. I think the West is not used to people looking at them as an outsider. They're just used to a very binary template of looking at the world. 
and i'm not trying to be a postmodernist relativist here i, I don't believe uh, those things either but i think the cultural milieu of india is, is by and large you know inspired by this ancient hindu or if you don't want to call it hindu indic way of thinking where we just think differently on certain issues so when it comes to our politics our politics will be far more complex and complicated than the american political scenario but uh, having said that it's just you know it is what it is now i mean everywhere in the world they just wanted to find someone who is the evil guy and uh, what i have seen uh, and this happens now in india too is usually what happens is when a particular ideology becomes the orthodoxy uh, when when i say well, what what do i mean by an orthodoxy is the basically they they control the zeitgeist the moral zeitgeist of a society i think post the 80s especially in america or in the west in general the left has been the moral orthodoxy in general similar things have happened in india since its independence the left has always been the moral orthodoxy in india so what happens is the orthodoxy usually does not tend to read the other side the other side always reads the orthodoxy and their own people so what i have experienced in my interactions with people in the left of the west is they actually don't read anything of the non left in india like i like to call uh, the bjp something that belongs to the non left in india they say we are not the left what they are they never clarify but they say we're not the left that's all they say and i personally also call myself someone who's not in the left of india although i personally would support affirmative action myself in india having said that this is my understanding of what is happening in the west i think it's just you know the citation loop that's happening and in that i believe most of it is pretty mediocre content i mean it might hurt some people like how can you say that about new york times but that's just my opinion and people can disagree with me it's okay All right, well, let's pivot and talk for a moment about uh, Kashmir, what's happening there. There's been a bit of an uproar uh, that's it's even making the news here about what's happening with this suspension of Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which, as I understand it, would suspend home rule in those in those territories. Could you break down for us what's happening there, maybe with a little bit of the background and, and give us a sense of uh what's really happening on the ground and how tense of a situation this really is okay just to give you guys a brief background about kashmir so uh you know when india and pakistan were created the british india eventually separated right so i think if i remember the history correctly there were 643 princely states and basically every single princely state was given the uh, option that you either merge into pakistan or you merge into india and at that time while you know the i think the king of kashmir was maharaja hari singh and he was while he was in the process of making a decision you know there was a pakistani army along with a few tribal terrorists or rebels i mean this is the indian version the pakistanis will disagree with it they attacked kashmir and then the maharaja hari singh he called the indian army and at that time sardar vallabhbhai patel who was the home minister of uh, india he said that you know you need to sign the instrument of accession that you are officially now a part of the indian union without that we cannot enter there and then he signed the instrument of accession and then the indian army went there and at that time the then prime minister of india nehru without consulting his uh, cabinet basically went and pushed this matter into the united nations and at that time the conditions there were certain conditions that were laid down where basically it cl- clearly mentioned that the pakistan occupied kashmir and the indian kashmir would both have to be demilitarized things would have to get down to normal conditions and after that 
there was going to be a plebiscite but obviously nothing of that side has happened and pakistan has consistently you know pushed a certain sort of uh, you know bleed india with a thousand cut strategy which has uh, you know led to a lot of lives uh, being lost uh, you know kashmiri muslims and kashmiri hindu lives i mean a lot of people don't realize that you know from 1988 to 1992 more than 400000 kashmiri pandits kashmiri hindus were literally butchered and they had to leave kashmir uh, nobody talks about that unfortunately yeah, anywhere in the west and uh, you know article 370 is is a unique case where kashmir had its own constitution and basically article 370 has not been removed it's been written down so basically uh, article 370 was used for its own you know kind of death that's what has happened currently in india so what this government has done is basically give, done away with the that special status for jammu and kashmir and what a lot of people don't realize is that because of article 370 there were a lot of uh, you know things that in a normal you know american left wing uh, discussion would be absolutely intolerable like things like you know the status of a lower caste like the valmikis in kashmir who were not being given jobs and who were not allowed any kind of upward mobility you know people could not buy property in kashmir and uh, you know especially there was another article called 35a along with because of that it was completely anti women where you know if a female married an outsider you know she could not uh, inherit that property things of that sort so a lot of these things have been removed having said all of that you know i'm not going to be a guy who's going to come on your podcast and say that there is nothing wrong that has happened from the indian side it's absolute rubbish if somebody claims that i i think the indian state might have made some mistakes too uh, currently what has happened is in since the last 19 or 20 days basically you know mobile connectivity in kashmir has been to a limited extent now there are there are two arguments for that you know one side of the argument and i i fall into that side which says that you know no matter what the case civil liberties are civil liberties and the indian state should eventually you know give grant those civil liberties to you know the kashmiris too the other side is that kashmir is a sensitive area and look considering what pakistan tries to do in india we have to be very careful and now the government has started you know you know allowing in, uh, internet access and mobile access in certain areas of kashmir other than that what has been tried to be presented that kashmir is under curfew uh, that is all wrong i mean there are enough uh, ground reports from indian journalists who have traveled to kashmir and again this is the problem you know somebody will say that journalist is a government lackey and then there will be some indian journalists who will say no 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 this is happening and that is the truth i mean i don't know we just live in this era where i mean it's like a he says she says uh, thing i mean in fact i'm planning to get both the sides on my podcast in the coming week myself and i'm going to present both the sides and you know let the people decide but to make a long story short this is what happened in kashmir and i don't know why article 370 is presented to be this great thing because honestly the discourse in kashmir to be very honest is i mean what about jammu like you know it's called the state of it was called the state of jammu and kashmir and what about ladakh i mean i would recommend everybody you know who listens to your podcast to actually go and listen to a speech by a member of parliament from ladakh who recently gave a speech in the indian parliament i know it's in hindi but you can read the translation or the script translated in english you guys should read and listen to the horror stories of the people in ladakh basically article 370 was a sunni male imposition on the entire state of jammu kashmir and ladakh and it is what it is i know those so i know that 
Kashmir itself is a predominantly Muslim area. Are those predominantly non-Muslim populations? Yes, Ladakh would be predominantly Buddhist and Jammu would be predominantly Hindu. The, the Hindus in Kashmir, like I said, in 1990s, the Kashmiri Hindus were basically driven out by, you know, the Islamists. So there are no Hindus in Kashmir because why? Because they were driven out. I mean, there is documented evidence about how the Kashmiri pundits were treated. But again, what you'll find is in the Western discourse, you'll find that one Kashmiri pundit who hates this, this, uh, this truth and they'll come and say, nothing of that sort has happened. It doesn't change the reality what happened. And it, it's, uh, in fact, I find it shocking the, the kind of discourse that is on Kashmir, actually, at the international arena. I mean, kudos to Pakistan. They've managed to convince a lot of people. Well, yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, the perspective that outsiders have on something, on, on a situation, can be very different from people who have kind of a stake in the actual issue. You know, for from us, I think the... The typical reaction, uh, you know, kind of gut reaction of folks outside the region is, well, you know, Pakistan's a nuclear power, India's a nuclear power, whatever the complicated specifics of the issue, you know, it's better if things are, you know, it's better if there aren't tensions and, you know, heightened tensions and conflict over that. I think that's kind of the general perspective. Yeah, I, I get that. And I would not say that any Indian, average Indian or Pakistani is, you know, a bloodthirsty person. But just think about it. Even today, I mean, I read Imran Khan's article in the New York Times. Yes, I paid for that article. <laughs> I mean, I regret it. But yes, I did read it. I paid for that and I read it. And I mean, what was the tone of Imran Khan's article? I mean, this has been the Pakistani negotiation tactic. I'm just giving you an analogy. Just think about it, you know. I mean, if shit hits the roof and America and Canada have a conflict and every time America and Canada have a conflict, Canada goes and says, listen to me, Americans, we're a nuclear power and we don't have a no first use policy. And America will be like, no, no, we like just think about it. Is this a negotiation tactic? What was Imran Khan basically writing in many words? The Pakistani argument every time where they go is like, you know, it's like. We are a nuclear power. You know, you then if we use that bomb, don't tell us. I mean, India doesn't go around telling the world. Uh, show me one statement on the United Nations floor or anywhere in the world where the Indian government or the Indian state has gone and said, listen, if you guys don't support us on Kashmir, always remember we have the nuclear bomb. India doesn't do that. India has a no first use policy, officially stated no first use policy. And Pakistani is basically the Pakistani state. And I want to clarify here, I'm not talking about the Pakistani people. I'm talking about the Pakistani state, which is pretty much the Pakistani army because the Pakistani state, in my view, is just the puppet state. The army decides whatever they want to do and they just keep putting one puppet prime minister there. This is the, I mean, how can you negotiate with a person like that? It's like you're negotiating with the mob. The mob says, I'm going to blow you up. And you're just supposed to say there and go down and bow your head down to their highness and say, yes, sir, uh, you have the nuclear bomb. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the Indian state, you know, people are used to a submissive Indian state. And I think the current Indian state is pretty clear. They're like, look, if you have a nuclear bomb, yeah, we know that. We have one too. Now what? So I read things like, in fact, one of the places that I was uh, looking at before this podcast was uh, Vox. And they use the term flash, a nuclear flashpoint. And I've seen that elsewhere. Do you think that that's overstating the situation or what, you know, what's your sense of what, how tense is the situation? 
It's nothing, man. You just think about it. Today was Imran Khan had made this speech where all of Pakistan today was supposed to be on the streets from 12 to 12.30 to show support to their Kashmiri brothers. And I was just looking at videos of Pakistani people on Twitter whining. Why is this guy making us stand on the roads and forcing us to stand here for half an hour? We just want to go to work. Look, the average Pakistani (laughs) and the average Indian doesn't care. At the end of the day, you know, Pakistani state's existence. Look, you have to understand the historical concept, construct. Pakistan was created out of a certain hatred of India. India always existed. They left us. We did not leave them. You have to understand the core existence of India was never about, I hate Pakistan. We Pakistan did not even enter our brain. There was a certain segment that said, we hate you. We don't want to live with the Hindu. And they left. Indians never said that. Indian Muslims never said that. But there was a certain section of Indian Muslims from Uttar Pradesh and Bihar who conceptualized Pakistan, you know, from Shah Waliullah and, you know, others to, to begin with. And they created Pakistan. I mean, I would recommend a very good book called Creating a New Medina by a scholar Venkat Dhulipala, if anybody in your audiences wants to read the creation of Pakistan and its history. But that's just been the whole thing. You know, for Pakistan, I mean, hatred of India has been their, uh, you know, cash cow. For India, it's not about that. You'll not see Indian politicians beyond a certain point, you know, discussing Pakistan. They'll be like, okay, we need to fix the economy. We need to build bathrooms. I mean, if you do an honest content analysis of Modi speeches and Pakistani politicians, you'll see a clear difference. The difference would be that Modi will mention Pakistan, will mention Kashmir. But beyond a point, he'll be like, you know what? I need to build bathrooms for everybody. So he fixed that problem in his first term. I need to give everybody electricity. He fixed that problem in the first term. I need to stop these poor people from using charcoal for cooking their food. I need to give them gas stoves. He fixed that problem. Now in the current term, he's saying every single rural household in India needs water, drinking water. He's going to fix that in his term. So that's what the discussion in India has always been. But for Pakistan to stay in discussion, they always bring up, I'm going to bomb you. I mean, how is that a negotiation tactic? I mean, imagine Canada always brings up the bomb you with America. Right. Well, they don't have the bomb. Yeah, I was going to say, interestingly enough, I follow a uh, retired uh, Canadian diplomat, Robin McNabb. And uh, he's actually, I noticed on uh, one of his tweets recently was making that point of given geopolitics these days that maybe Canada needs uh, a nuclear weapon just to be taken seriously in the world. So, uh, you know, that would certainly be a different turn of events. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, as someone who loves Canada and, uh, you know, my wife's a Canadian, so <laughs> that would not be cool. Yeah. A, little, a little out of keeping with their uh, reputation for, you know, politeness and whatnot. Um, I do want to ask yeah. you, so you alluded earlier to the fact that from Pod Save America to Ben Shapiro, everybody's reference point on India and Indian history was this one book by uh, Guha, the uh, India after Gandhi, which I've also read. <laughs> but uh, so what, what if, if our listeners wanted to get a better sense of India, what are some sources that you would recommend? What, you know, what would be a counterbalance to that? Yeah, so if you wanted to read Indian history, there are, you know, very good historians. I mean, they're not even the BJP historians. I would say they're good historians like R.C. Majumdar. There is Jadunath Sharkar. If you want to read new authors, there is someone called Sanjeev Sanyal. He's a good author. 
to understand uh, Hindus or what they are not, I would recommend an Indian American author called Rajiv Malhotra. His book, Being Different, is a very interesting take. I don't agree with a lot of uh, views of Rajiv Malhotra at a personal level, but I think his book, Being Different, was very interesting. And there, there is Arun Shori, who's written, you know, extensively. He's a very well-known Indian intellectual. On the journalistic side, there are Kanchan Gupta, you know, Swapandas Gupta. There, there are many people. Or if you want to, you know, go and read some, you know, non-left material, there's the Swaraj magazine. You, you can go to these sources and read them. But, I mean, I'll give you another example. When I was studying in Canada, in York University, I went to the library of York University. And I wanted to know what was the source material about India and Hinduism. I mean, I don't care what they think about Islam. Let's be very honest. I mean, I was, you know, more interested about what they think about India and Hinduism. And to my utter horror, there was not even a single authentic source. I mean, imagine if your source on Hinduism is a Marxist in India. That's a pretty terrible way of understanding a religion. I mean, no skin in the game, no soul in the game. I mean, I personally am a materialist. I mean, in Western terms, you could call me an atheist, although I don't use that term personally in India. I call myself a Nastika. But having said that, if I wanted to debate Hindus who claim uh, or make some, some divine claims, I would actually go to their sources who they actually accept. I would go to a pandit or, or 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 a scholar within you know the community who's actually got skin in the game, who's living, breathing embodiment of that. But uh, obviously, it's not how it happened in the West. And, uh, you know, you have these so-called India experts. I mean, I'm using quotation marks here. But uh, and they're all uh, and I don't mean this in a racist sense, but they're all just a bunch of white folks who say, you know, you brown folks, you know, we know more about you than you know about yourself. And we're just supposed to say, OK, sir, thank you very much. Uh, you, you never offend Josiah and I if you just refer to us as a bunch of white folks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, well, truth is a defense, I suppose. Kajal, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thanks a lot for having me over. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. 